Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I am the science editor at The Verge. And I am uh, reporting this week from South by Southwest, from beautiful, rainy Austin, Texas. Um, it's, it's actually South by South, uh, Southwest Eve as we record this, but I think when it comes out, it will be in full effect. All the brands will be out, uh, ready to beckon you into their various tents and stables and lofts. Will will they be activated yet? yet? Are the brands brands activating? activating. They're activating right now. I saw saw them putting the last coat of paint on the uh, McDonald's loft as I was driving in in my cab. So, you know, tomorrow, it'll be be on in earnest. I'll, I'll let you know my first thing that I'm doing tomorrow um, because I've, I've decided that my mission at South by Southwest is to exercise every single day in the most absurd way possible. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to a private cycling session uh, with a company called... I'm not going to say the name. They want me to say the name. I'm not going to say the name of the company. Uh, I've actually made, a, I've made a, 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 a casual pact to not say the name of a single brand um, this entire festival, but oh, um, man. they have these spikes that have a screen on them, a video screen, and you can watch live spin classes on the screen from the comfort of your home so that you don't have to go out and mix with the hoi polloi when you go to Soul Cycle, um, like filthy low class Soul Cycle, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm doing that tomorrow, getting a demo of that, and. Um, I don't know. I'm probably going to go to like an Under Armour breakfast or something. So (laughs) it's going to be good. But there's, you know, aside from the brands, there's a lot of good stuff happening this week um, in in film and and music later on. Um, There's a premiere. A lot of premieres are happening. Uh, Preacher is the new AMC shows premiering here. Um, Midnight Special is Jeff Nichols' new film, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Um, that is also premiering here. And uh, the Pee Wee movie on Netflix is premiering here. So <laughs> something for everybody. Wow. Um, so I'm sure I'll have more to talk about this next week. But uh, right now it's all just a big mystery box waiting for me to open it. <laughs> well, speaking of mysteries, we're, we're getting a little bit more information on Zika. Now, I want to be t- super clear because I saw something kind of alarming on the internet, which, <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of alarming things on the internet, but this one um, surprised me a little. Uh, I guess there are a lot of people out there who think that Zika is potentially fatal. And I want to be extremely clear, we don't have evidence of that. Uh, we do have it linked to birth defects, and we do have it linked to... Um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, or Guillain-Barre, possibly. There's an accent over that E. The continuing theme of Liz mispronounces things. The, what's going on now is we're getting much better evidence that women who have Zika infections during their first trimester of pregnancy uh, are at high risk for having a baby uh, with an abnormally small head uh, and an underdeveloped brain, which is called uh, microcephaly. Um, And what we've found so far is that the number of babies with microcephaly have tripled in number compared to the average before the outbreak. So um, it's not looking good in terms of, you know, Zika's link to birth defects. It looks like that that probably is solidifying. But I want to be extremely clear with everybody. uh, Zika is not going to kill you. It if you are infected with Zika, uh, and I, I mentioned this because I'm going to go to Mexico um, next month, which oh is a boy. place that is affected. 
uh, if you're not pregnant, you probably aren't going to experience anything too severe. So what we know it does cause is a fever and a rash. And that is Zika. Like that, if you're not pregnant, like that is the infection. So is there a way to test for it then if you do happen to be pregnant or if you are thinking about becoming pregnant? Uh, there are ways to test for it. Uh, however, it seems like for most people, uh, especially in places like Brazil, they're often not in places where the testing is easy to come by. Uh, and particularly with this, this group of women, they couldn't confirm that all of these women in, in the study I'm talking about were infected with Zika. They just had Zika-like symptoms and there was an outbra- outbreak in the area they were living. Hmm. So, you know, this is not the final say, but we are getting progressively more evidence that links these things together, which is kind of the frustrating and slow way in which science works, right? Like we think that there's something happening and then we need to have a bunch of studies to show that it's happening. And then we need to have a bunch more studies to rule out other stuff. And then we need to talk about how often it's occurring. So we're starting to get closer. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's Zika. That's the Zika update. And the more defined it is, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to be blindly panicked about so i guess that's 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 the silver lining to finding right. out that well it, it lets you do risk assessment right mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's that's really crucial is being able to say okay am i at risk for the worst consequences of this and what should i expect how do i evaluate danger that's yeah. that's a lot of what like medicine is about really because every drug has a side effect and every medical condition has its own sort of Sim- like sweet, basically, of of things to expect, which not everybody will have, but you sort of know what to look for. Well, um, uh, let's talk about this other story that came up this week because it just it exists at the sweet spot between celebrities and science, and I just <laughs> I just would love love to chat about it for a second. <laughs> so Maria Sharapova has been. Is that how you pronounce her name? Uh, uh, I, think I would assume so. Sharapova, yeah. Yeah, so it turns out she's been blood dope. well, not blood doping, she's been um, taking performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, and before we get any further, I would like to note that that still hasn't allowed her to beat Venus Williams, which, like, I'm <laughs> not a total sports person, but even I can tell that uh, Venus is, is remarkable. Yeah. That's, that's how good she is, uh, yeah. is that her competition on drugs can't beat her. Uh, well, so, so what? So what were the drugs, though? Let's let's be clear. Do we? So the the brand name is Mildrenate, and the chemical name is Meldonium, and they are cardiac drugs, right? Okay. So they were um, developed by a Latvian chemist who says that he his intended use case was basically super soldiers. <laughs> oh my god. The idea was that uh, it's, the, it's like a beta blocker. Yeah, right? well, kind of. Okay. It's so here's here's how it works. Um, the idea was that you know if Soviet troops were in Afghanistan in the mountains, they needed to be able to get extra oxygen. And so what it does is it increases the oxygen carrying capacity uh, and increases endurance. And so if you're a super soldier, it's easier for you to carry all of your stuff. Um. And if you're an athlete, it makes it easier for you to do really, really difficult um, workouts so that you can, you know, build up your muscles and and get stronger and so on. 
So and also like last through a match or a game that might go on for a really long time. Right. So Sharapova has claimed that this is to treat a heart condition. Uh, and while it's true that uh, you know that 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 some athletes do use performance enhancing drugs, uh, it also turns out that you can use them if you have the right kinds of permissions from your doctor. Like uh, just uh, how probably everybody in the NBA has a, a crippling case of ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of those things where this is going to be probably something that's going to be in the news for a while. Uh, we've written about it a little bit. Uh, Wired has really written about it well, and I'm shouting it out because they are the people who really brought the super soldier angle to the forefront. Uh, that was some really cool reporting, and I just wanted to be extremely clear about where it came from. Um, yeah, that is fascinating. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, like, no wonder I've never heard of this drug. I'm not in the market for it. Right, exactly. <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, um, you know... Um, there's, I've been covering performance enhancing drugs for a while. I think they're super interesting. There's always some new way to get around the regulations because there are always the drugs that, you know, they haven't figured out how to ban yet or that they're difficult right. to test for. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I, I think it's, it's really, really interesting. And, uh, again, yeah. it's just evidence of how incredibly, incredibly, incredibly dominant Venus Williams is. <laughs> that's the end that's the takeaway point <laughs> that venus williams is amazing <laughs> yeah well it's also like it, it exists on a continuum i mean there are like 18 panels here at south by this week about like how to hack your brain i mean everybody wants to do it in some way or another whether it's like to make a bunch of spreadsheets or to beat venus williams at tennis so it's like definitely a very it's a it's a symptom of a larger cultural um tick right now i would say but um Tick is like a very light way to put that, I guess. (laughs) I guess one of the things that I want to talk about, and this is going to sort of segue, I think, into the thing that I next want to rant about, um, (laughs) is that we often look for really simple pill-based solutions to things that are not simple. Um, And this is true with obesity. It's true with performance-enhancing drugs. It's true with attention. And it also happens to be true of sleep. So sleep is super important. And Mm -hmm. the reason I bring this up is that we are about to lose an hour on Sunday uh, and everybody's going to be sleep deprived on Monday. Um, So the reason we're losing it, of course, is if you're in the U.S., you're going to be springing forward for daylight saving time, which is terrible and I hate it. Well, okay, we (laughs) should say everybody's going to be sleep deprived this weekend if they weren't already sleep deprived because of the nature of life in a capitalist society. Well, I mean, this is this is only going to make it worse, right? Like sleep yeah. deprivation is super, super common um, for any of a variety of reasons. I actually went to um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and they find that about one in five adults don't get enough sleep. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And so, you know, they list off reasons. Um, and one is, you know, voluntary behavior. So like when you don't really think about Things like uh, sleep hygiene, for example, um, which is uh, a way to make sure that when you go to bed, you, you go to sleep. The only thing you use your bed for is basically sex and sleeping. So that's one way uh-huh. to do it. You make sure you have a routine bedtime and you always get there. You try not to use electronic devices uh, or subject yourself to bright lights right before you go to bed, those kinds of things. So there's that. Uh, there's personal obligations. So, for example, you might lose sleep if you are caring for somebody who is sick. 
or if you are traveling to a wedding. <laughs> yeah, or if you're a parent, that's a really yep. good example. Um, and then work hours, obviously, um, as well as medical problems. Yeah. So let's go back to the origin of daylight savings because I feel like it's a Californian inven- invention, is it not? Like it's something that was invented to take more advantage of summer or did I like mishear that? Is that like an urban legend? I think that's an urban legend. So <laughs> uh, like, as as I know, I blame California is just like, it's been in my blood. It's just how we roll in the U.S. <laughs> no, actually, um, the person whose fault it originally is, is Benjamin Franklin. Uh, oh. as, as with patent, uh, any problems you have with patents, you can blame good old Ben. Uh, oh, but never he mind, I knew that. a joke. <laughs> Okay, he was like making fun of the Parisians and was like, oh, I accidentally happened to notice that the sun was rising. Wouldn't it be nice if we were to change the time a little so that the sun would come up a little later in the day when I'm not sleeping through it? And then then it first and then and then from there, it gets introduced in America in 1918 as a measure for of uh, conserving energy for World War One. Um, thinking that, you know, people don't make the best use of daylight in the morning, right? They tend to be more active in the evening. Uh, but after the war, uh, farmers wanted the law repealed because it's easier to do farm work, some of which must be done very early in the morning, especially right. if you have cows. Right. Uh, when the rest of the world is also on the sun schedule. And then in 1942, um, DST gets enacted again, uh, but year round. So there's no springing forward and backward. It's just everybody is, a, is an hour, um, an hour later or okay. earlier um and then after that it was just wild yeah <laughs> like some places had it some places didn't it gets standardized in 1966 and then in 2007 a law passed by george w bush expands it uh from march to november okay which is where we are now because it used to be april to november right that's well it was april to october april to october okay so he added five weeks to it. Okay. So 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 let me get. So what what is the what is the crux of your rant? Like what what is your beef with daylight savings? Because I have to say, I'm kind of a like I'm a big fan of of. Well, I'm a big fan of waking up early. I like to wake up like, not not waking up early, but I like to wake up when the sun's waking up. Like that's that feels normal to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I also like not having. Not getting out of work at five or six. Not, <laughs> I got out of work at five. LOL. Uh, at like seven and having to be nighttime already. Like I like, I like to feel like I get a little bit of day. So I don't know. I don't really have any strong emotions around daylight savings either way. But but do well. Explain here it. is here is my beef, and it is a specific beef. I don't like changing the clock. It's that simple. <laughs> I like I really don't like changing the clock and I don't like it for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't like it, first of all, on a personal level, because we're just now getting to the point in time in the year where the sun is coming up right as I'm waking up. So it's a little easier for me Uh to get out of bed and I'm about to go back to darkness and yanking myself out of bed again. And that just personally sucks. But yeah, um, the actual time change. So to go back to sleep deprivation, the actual time change actually makes sleep deprivation worse for a lot of people. Now, remember, we're, we're functioning with one in five people who are already sleep deprived, and then they lose an hour. And the problem there is that it's hard to go to bed at a time that is on the clock normal because you're still an hour. You know, you still haven't adjusted. But that and, only lasts for like a week, right? I mean, yeah, it, it goes on adjusts. for about six days. 
you know, okay. that people are sleep deprived. You see an increase in traffic accidents. Um, huh. You see an increase in heart attacks. And you also see an increase in, um, in workplace injuries. Hmm. And it looks like workers miss on average about 40 minutes of sleep as a result of changing our clocks. So here's my, here's my beef with, with daylight savings time. If, if we're going to do it, then we should just do it all year. You know, there are some people who argue against it because uh, usually parents who point out that, you know, children are the ones who are walking to school in the mornings and they're more likely to be struck and killed by cars in the dark. And so having dark mornings means that, you know, it's dangerous for kids to go to school. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, but it's going to be dark in the morning, no matter what, though, in the winter, like whether you're an hour ahead or back, like it's just dark. The day is shorter, especially if you live further north. So my feeling is I don't care if we stick with daylight saving time or standard time. I would just like us to pick one and stick to it. That's all I want. No, you know, I don't feel like that's too much to ask. (laughs) Well, you know, the changing the clock thing really only applies to your oven, right? Like <laughs> your 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 computer should change time automatically and your phone changes its time automatically. So at least that's taken care of for right, you. Like the actual changing. <laughs> right. I don't actually have to like set well, I do have a couple of analog clocks that I do have to reset, but that actual act doesn't bother me as much as the the fatigue that comes with switching with the hour sure. that you lose. Um and it's more acute actually uh, this time of year than it is in the fall because you gain an hour and and generally it's easier to gain an hour than it is to lose an hour physiologically Oh, for sure so yeah so we're about to go into a a crazy season and the other problem which is (laughs) uh uh uh, really more of a problem i guess for those of us who work in media uh is that uh other countries are not shifting forward at the same time as us, which means that there are a ton of miscommunications and like embargo breaks and all kinds of things that usually go along with this period where we have switched over and other nations have not. That's also a tremendous Watch those gadget blogs, everybody, for some accidental news that might be... uh... (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So people are accidentally first to the news. So that's my beef with daylight saving time. I just think it's, I think it's a bad idea. Well, I, I support I support your emotion. I feel like maybe I'm having a hard time getting mad about it um, because I slept for 10 hours last night and I feel <laughs> pretty rested uh, despite having just taken traveled all day. I actually feel pretty okay. But this is after um, having a bad case of muscle inflammation, which tends to happen to me when I am sleep deprived. Yeah. So, uh, so that, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all, I I am against sleep deprivation. I don't, I don't, I'm not too mad at daylight savings time, but I I agree that societally sleep deprivation is a bad thing. And it's one of these things that everybody likes to like subtly lord over other people. Like I got less sleep than you did. I Uh, hate that (laughs) shit. I hate it so much. I'm like, yeah, I got eight hours last night. Like, whatever. Yeah. You're not more busy and important than me. You're just working more inefficiently because you're exhausted. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's that's also... I'm going to write about this when I do my thing about working out at South By because that's, like, the only other... The only thing I can really lord over anybody at South By, which is just especially during interactive filled with these high-achieving people who, like, like, on the flight out, it's just, like... You kind of sneak a peek at everybody's laptop that's open and they're all doing like powerpoints about like 
best practices for something or other. Like everybody's just like doing kind of fakey feeling work and doing it really, really hard. So I'm like, if I, if I like meet somebody and say, oh yeah, I went to spin class this morning, like everybody will really hate me because I have something on them. So. <laughs> Um, well, uh, before we before we transition, though, I do want to give like a little piece of advice, uh, and this is particularly for for parents who are trying to transition their kids. Just mm. go to bed fifteen minutes earlier than you would on Friday, and then half an hour earlier on Saturday, and then forty five minutes earlier on Sunday, and it won't be as painful. That that seems reasonable. That seems like no one's going to do it, but. That, that is a reasonable way to transition. All right. Well, sleep tips from Liz. We should, <laughs> we should just make that a regular thing. I'd be into it. I need, I need all the sleep tips I can get. Um, so I, uh, I kind of completely vary in another lane. I have actually seen a bunch of movies recently, and I kind of just want to talk about those this week because they're all kind of special in an interesting way. And one of uh, two of them are pretty timely because one opens um, will be open today if you're listening to this on Friday, um, and one is pr- opening next week and is premiering this week. Um, this week at South by Southwest, um, and I've just been kind of like really digging these sort of uh, slightly off kilter genre movies that have been coming out lately. I mean, I would say in general that's my favorite mode of movie. Um, you know, we talked last time about the mermaid just being like, you know, aside from its the ecological themes, just being kind of unboxable, like undefinable uh, within a genre or like a tradition of film necessarily. Um, and I feel like there has been a lot of stuff coming out recently that's, um, that, that kind of fits that description. Um, so and I know you haven't seen any of these, Liz, but do you, which, which of these is the most interesting to you? Because I, I, I want to talk about 10 Cloverfield Lane. I want to talk about Midnight Special, the new Jeff Nichols movie. And I want to talk about The Witch, um, which came out a while back, I think when we were on hiatus still, but we never talked about. So um, I'm going to say The Witch, if only because I've heard so many conflicting things from people. I have people telling me I'm going to love it. I have people telling me, oh, it's not very good. I was kind of bored. And I generally don't like horror movies, but the fact that people keep telling me that this is a horror movie I would like is really interesting to me. So I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you would like it too. And I am not that big of a horror movie person. I'll tell you, the one horror movie franchise going right now that I'm into is The Purge. But The Purge is like satire. The Purge is like like absolutely pitch black kind of doesn't really quite hold water satire about like violence in America um and I just get a kick out of it like it's very it feels sort of um I don't know radical in its own sort of stupid way um the witch is not that (laughs) so it doesn't it doesn't uh I mean it doesn't their basic reason I like both of those is that they are kind of you don't go in them into them for the same thing that you go into like a typical jump scare horror movie for. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's a first time feature from a guy who um, uh, was a costume designer and production designer up until then. So that kind of gives you a hint. Like it's it takes place in Puritan days um, on and just with one family in this little settlement by some woods. And that's who you're stuck with the entire time. But it's shot in a way, it's shot in very like natural light. 
all of these costumes are like hand stitched. I mean, it's just like completely immersive in the time period. And, uh, and there's a really good interview um, that Tasha Robinson did with um, the director, which you should definitely look up. It was it was out about a month ago, um, where he talks about it. And he talks about how you have to, like, that's part of immersing the viewer in the world of these people who believe in the devil and believe in Satan and believe in possession and stuff. Because it's not really clear if the movie does or not. Like, that's sort of, I think maybe if some people you know are disappointed with it, it's not entirely clear on whether or not some of the, the spooky stuff, if, whether the witches are real or whether whether the devil is real and stuff. That's all kind of up in the air. Um, but, um, I, I mean, I, I kind of misled a little bit there, and people who've seen the movie will <laughs> will probably be shaking their heads or yelling at, at the computer right now. But um, but the reason I bring it up in relation to these other movies is the ending of it, which I will not spoil here, does something, and, and I, if I say this and you haven't seen it, you're going to think I'm talking about The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, where... I, it's whatever but it's been a lot of years since it's been 10 years since the village came out so i think i can say like the village doesn't actually exist in old timey time or whatever it's that's that's the twist that's the Shyamalan twist um the Shyamalan twist is a dance craze that was just sweeping the nation in 1968 <laughs> uh but uh that that's not the twist that that has nothing to do with the twist in the witch but it does sort of in its last minutes go someplace completely different than where we have spent the rest of the film. Um, and that, I, th- I think some people liked that and some people didn't, but that's actually something that it shares with both 10 Cloverfield Lane and Midnight Special. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually being really careful about spoilers, if you'll notice. <laughs> I noticed this is unusual for us. Well, well, one, because two of these movies have not come out yet in theaters, so that's just mean. Uh, if it was a couple weeks later, maybe I'd talk about them in more detail. But then, truly, like, I enjoyed watching 10 Cloverfield Lane and Midnight Special so much not knowing what was going to happen. And I brought this up, actually, when I, I interviewed Jeff Nichols, the director of Midnight Special, and I said, I actually brought up when we when i talked to the the um the psychologist who had done the work on um spoilers on this podcast a while ago and i talked to him about that conversation um just like there is it has been proven that there's more pleasure to be had from knowing what's coming and uh and i actually found that to be the opposite case with midnight special like i did not know where this movie was going from minute to minute and I was absolutely riveted by it because I had I I just want to I just want to pause for a second because I actually don't know anything about Midnight Special so tell me give me a little bit of setup here sure yeah it's uh so it looks very Spielbergian in the trailers it's about a kid who's a very special little boy who has powers that are that are unexplained um and his dad is trying to take care of him and hide him from the FBI and uh, this cult that's searching for him. There are all these different interests that are all like wanting to have possession of this boy. So it's it's very like that's a very cliche sort of setup 
for a story like this. And it look it it you know the kid he's seen he's wearing these goggles and he has to wear these big noise canceling headphones because he's very like light sensitive, and he wears a bed sheet over his head. He looks like ET in the poster. Like it's very it's a nod to like you know Close Encounters and Starman and all these sort of like admittedly he like, he has said that he isn't has been inspired by these films, um, but the way that it plays out is so. Um, elliptical and oftentimes frustratingly un- underexplained, uh, but actually genuinely unpro- like you just don't know. You tonally it it sets you off balance, so you don't know like oh I'm watching this kind of movie. This is the thing that's going to happen next, um, which I think works to its favor for most of the film. I I wouldn't say all of it, but um, you know it's one of these things where I, I came out of it not wanting to really spoil it for people because it goes to a really crazy place at the end like the witch and uh not a place i would have seen coming in a million years and the whole time you're guessing you're trying to guess what's up with this kid what's up with these powers um because it could be anything and uh i don't know i thought that was cool i i don't know if you've seen his other films um take shelter was one where it also stars michael shannon as a guy who kind of believes that this rapture is coming so he's sort of he's got this sort of all of his films kind of take place in the south and in the heartland and uh kind of have these there's like you know these notes of religion and conspiracy and stuff in a lot of them so um uh so i just i thought that was really interesting um yeah i i mean i don't know have you it's been a while since we've talked spoilers i mean have you ever since since we had that podcast have you ever found anything to be uh, counter to that general argument? That's a good question. <laughs> what about Star Wars? I mean, I don't know if that's something that you cared about, but... <laughs> uh, I still haven't seen Star Wars. <laughs> oh my god. You got a medal of some kind. Like, that's actually genuinely... How did you do it? <laughs> um, it turns out that if your main interests are running around in the woods and doing yoga that eats up a lot of your time and so (laughs) oh that's a really amazing excuse too i wish i had that excuse you're gonna have too busy running around the woods (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's gonna be your excuse at south by people are gonna be like were you at this thing and you're like no i was working out uh yeah oh no no but i mean you know it was also like it wasn't something that i you and i've talked about this that i felt very excited about and I've definitely had fun at movies where I walked in not knowing anything about the movie. Yeah. But I can't think of anything that has been dramatically improved by knowing the, not knowing the ending. So, like, right now I'm watching um, The Great British Bake Off because it is <laughs> soothing. Uh, my little yes. sister got me started on it. And I know who wins. And I still oh, love it. you already know because she told you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I might be a bad test case. I mean, I've watched entire seasons of Project Runway Unknown Who's Gonna Win and still enjoyed watching the journey, which is like a different kind of thing than I think knowing who's gonna die off in a horror movie or something. Yeah. Um, the thing in a horror movie is like, you know that one by one people are gonna get killed off and one person's gonna be left. So who it is doesn't really matter so much as like, you know how these things go, you know how they play out. And I think that's been the thing that I liked about these movies is that like, I really don't even know the type of thing it is, much less like, you know, the specifics of who's gonna do what. Um, and, and 10 Cloverfield Lane, I mean, that's been one that's been purposefully kept very 
secretive. It didn't even have a trailer till January. Nobody even knew, knew it existed before then. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's very, very Abramsy. Um, but you know, in this case, and, and, and Brian Bishop wrote a review of it, but in this case, I think that it's really, really works to the film's advantage because it kind of exists between genres in a way that I think a, a trailer that tried to explain it too much would have kind of taken the air out of and, and, and really like keeping you on edge, not knowing, okay, is, is John Goodman, John Goodman's character lying about some kind of contamination or, or biochemical attack that's happened outside, which is like why he has to keep these people in a bunker. Like it's, it's been, yeah, it's a, uh, you really don't know. Like you think you go in thinking you know exactly how it's going to end, and, and and it does not play out that way at all. <laughs> and and it's um it's just it's just like really refreshing. I think it's just it's it's just refreshing to go into a film. And I haven't even been watching trailers that much. I've kind of found that I don't need to lately. Like like for me, just reading. <laughs> One, I hate watching videos on the internet. <laughs> That's a thing that it's just like something that's really hard to get me to have the curiosity to press play on a YouTube video. I'm usually, I'll, I'll read what everybody else is saying about something. And if it sounds boring to me, like, I don't know, right now my feed is filled with people talking about a Captain America trailer that I could care less about. I'm probably never going to watch that trailer. I'll probably watch it if I go to the movies and it plays before a movie, but I'm not going to watch it of my own volition on the internet on a little YouTube screen. So, I mean, I've, I've have actually been going to a lot more movies, not really having been exposed to that much information ahead of time um and i like that i think i think that's a little different than than being outright spoiled just like not having been inundated with marketing and having a a narrative in your head i think is is really like is good for the art i will say yeah you know i i'll certainly say that I've definitely had the experience where I've walked into a movie in part because somebody has invited me and uh-huh. I don't know what I'm going to watch. Like I have just, I don't know what the, like I know the literal title of the movie, but I haven't checked it out beforehand. And I've had good experiences with that in part because I just have no expectations, right? Like that, yeah. that's what trailers do is they sort of set expectations. And so yeah. I don't know if this is a distinction between spoilers and expectations or if it's a little bit of both or what the deal is, because I, I'm just going to be super clear about this. I have already been spoiled by the end of the, about the end of the witch. <laughs> oh, you already know. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, out of, out of, uh, deference to your judgment, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say what it is, but yeah. in, in fairness to the person who spoiled <laughs> me, they spoiled me because they were like, you're going to love it. And here's why. And told me the ending. And I was like, you know, that does sound like a movie I would enjoy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Something about the taste of butter. Did they tell you about that? No. Oh man. Okay. Uh, You have to, you have to, you have to see it. Okay. I mean, the, the way that it plays out, the way the ending plays out is like very, it's exciting. It's good. Um, well, uh, speaking of... Okay, so th- these were not the only movies I've seen recently. I also saw a movie, uh, finally, which feels like forever, because it, I think it premiered originally last year at South by Southwest. And I finally got to see it this last week. Um, City of Gold, which is a documentary about the food critic and writer Jonathan Gold, who, I just want to <laughs> be completely clear, is one of my like heroes as far as writing goes. I He... Aside from being just a great writer, he 
was somebody that I started reading when I moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, when I started going to college there. And, you know, I didn't Los Angeles is a hard thing to to get to know, a hard city to get to know, and it feels vast and unknowable when you move there, especially if you move there with like not a lot of money or like not necessarily a lot of friends there. Um, and his writing, you know, just doing restaurant criticism of a lot of kind of places off the beaten path and little strip mall restaurants and the kind of stuff that's like very deeply LA, um, both ethnically and just like how it, how it exists in the city, how like, um, you know, everything, you know, it was truck food before truck food was everywhere, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that really was one of my big entries into understanding Los Angeles and like really loving Los Angeles. Um, and this documentary kind of follows, I, I think a lot of it was shot around 2013, but um, he, it just sort of follows him doing his job more or less, um, going to restaurants and getting to know the people who work there and there are about six or so restaurants that are highlighted, most of which I've been to and love very much. Um, Jitlada, this is a Thai restaurant that is um, largely regarded as one of the best Thai restaurants in LA. Um, and just like meeting the people, um, Meals by Janae uh, is another one, an Ethiopian restaurant, like meeting the people who his writing has like changed their lives because it put a spotlight on them and like made their business viable there's that aspect like the economic aspect but just like also just making in a lot of ways it it is um it's parallel to you know writing about pop culture like he takes a lot of food that is not necessarily fine dining um seriously and studies it and uh is deeply interested in it and that really shows in his writing like it's somebody in the film describes him as being like an incredibly empathetic writer and i think that's what makes it good like he's empathetic about food and the people who make it and the people who eat it and um so that's my (laughs) that's my fangirl spiel about jonathan gold um and uh yeah so i got to talk to him this last week about the film and we kind of get right into it so uh so here we go so tell me a little bit first just about why a movie and why now i'm not Sure, exactly. I mean, I've been saying no forever to most reality TV stuff, but, you know, TV stuff in general, and and even a, even a documentary thing or two. And, I don't know, a, a bunch of years ago, um, I volunteered, um, you know, a dinner at, to, to have a dinner at, with the restaurant critic as something at a silent auction for a school mm-hmm. that a friend's kid went to. And Laura bought it. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and Laura so is we the director out, of the film, I should just clarify. Yeah, Laura Gabbard. Laura Gabbard. And, and we went out to uh, Luda Bites, I think either the first one or the second one, when it was still in a bakery in West Hollywood. Oh, right, yeah. And she she suggested the idea of a documentary, and I I pretty much just brushed it off. But she kept calling, and we had coffee a few times. And at some point, my kids started going to the same school that her children were going to. And I 
guess I was worn down a little. I mean, it's one thing saying like no to somebody over a phone, and it's another thing when you see them like every single day in the drop-off lines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine, I mean, I, I know just kind of coming from essentially the same world if somebody's like, oh, I want to do a film about your job, I'd be like, what are you, you going to look at? But at the same time you have, I mean, because of the nature of what you cover, there's so much... It, it, it becomes a film about seeing Los Angeles through your eyes, which is especially meaningful or touching to me because I, you know, I, I kind of got to know Los Angeles through your writing when I first moved there. And I think I'm not alone in that. But um, so it just seemed really fitting to me that, you know, to have it be a broader film about Los Angeles, but through this lens of food and your writing. Wow. Thanks. Um, I, I wanted it to be about Los Angeles, and ultimately her idea was that, to, to have sort of a portrait of the city, but through food and through the, through the way I look at it. And I think upon seeing, you know, at least the rough cuts of it, one thing that was surprising to me was how much time in the film is basically just behind the wheel of my truck. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there's a million great things about Los Angeles, but one thing that I don't think anybody gets is sort of the Zen beauty of sitting in traffic when you know you're not going to move, so there's no need to get mad at it. You have great music on, and you're looking at you're looking at the sunset and the lights change and the light changing on the mountains, and there's this beautiful sort of like LA serenity that I don't think happens anywhere else in the world quite that way. Yeah. I mean, most people associate that with like road rage or, um, or, or what's the movie with, um, Michael Douglas, um, (laughs) where he he gets out of his car and goes on a rampage. Um, (laughs) but yeah, there's, I mean, that was that, that feeling of, um, I mean, for me is very familiar of being in the car. I mean, it seemed like the most appropriate place to, to tell that story from and I was saying like the scenes where you're driving around and just like pointing out every place and saying they have great galbi or they have like great tacos or whatever is um is so familiar because I, I feel like that's how that's how I kind of go around identifying places in town <laughs> um I and, and I do that I mean it's probably annoying to my friends and stuff, but I can do that for 14 hours at a time. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's what I love doing. It's, it's the way that I, that I know the city and, and driving down something like, you know, Valley Boulevard and being able to point out a hundred restaurants within like a mile or, or, or Las Tunas or, um, Greenleaf and Whittier or, you know, there's, or Pico Boulevard, there's so many streets and the architecture's good and this famous person lived here and this famous person died here. So uh, I think an interesting thing that not a lot of people know and is a part of the documentary is that you started off in music criticism, which I think is so cool. And uh, and I, I, it's always interesting to me when somebody who's in criticism or in writing changes what they're writing about. And I know a lot of people who've like gone from writing about music to going to TV or movies to music or something. But um, to go from music to food is really interesting. Like I know it was a while ago, but like what really kind of precipitated that? Well, I started out, I guess, as a writer, as the classical music critic for the weekly. I mean, that's my only actual training in anything is in classical music. Mm -hmm. And even then I was, you know, I was writing about that and, and I loved it, but I, 
you know, I'd spend almost every spare minute in the LA, in the LA punk scene. So I was, I was obviously into that too. But, um, I don't know when you're writing about pop music, part of it is great. You know, the idea that you're, you get off the plane in the airport and you, you take a cab to this address you've been given and you get past three bouncers and suddenly you're, backstage with this band that you're going to be following for the next three weeks. I mm-hmm. guess that's more profiles than it is. Anything yeah. Else. It's not three weeks. It's four days. It's almost always just exactly four days. Yeah. And you're, and you're completely immersed in that world. And it's just completely great. Or on the, on the criticism and you go to, you go to shows every night. I would, yeah. I was always, I was always a food critic at the same time. So I would like go to dinner on the way to the show. And that was, that was my day. And I couldn't think of anything, better than that in the That's world. That's a right? pretty nice life. Yeah. <laughs> good food, good show. But I mean, it makes sense though, because you talk about how um, specifically in the film, you're going to, to Chengdu Taste um, in Sangri Pearl Valley, like over and over and over again to do your review. And um, I don't know if that's like, is that the norm for critics to go multiple visits? Because I mean, you said you can go up to 17 times to a restaurant before you end up writing about it. Well, I've, I've done that. I've gone... When it's a cuisine that I don't know well, sometimes I'll go a lot of times. Um, I mean, if you know, I, I've never had, you know, you know, Eastern, I mean, Burmese food or something, and it's a restaurant that has it, and there's like this repertoire of salads, and I've got to understand the taste of it, and I've got to understand how it works into the larger context of things. But when I'm reviewing the mainstream restaurants, that I've that's at least half of what I do. Mm-hmm. It's usually four times. Four times is usually fine. It's just sort of like getting to know the band or or listening to their entire catalog or (laughs) or something. A little bit. I mean, when you're when you're a movie critic, I mean, you go to a movie and then you go to see it again. It's the same movie. And when you're reviewing music, sometimes it's weird. I mean, I know that everybody who's you know who writes about music has the experience of going to see a great band on an off night and it kills you because it's an awful show and you have to write about it as an awful show. I wrote, I, I'd reviewed Nirvana about five times before I saw a show that they did at the Palladium about um, three or four months before they recorded Nevermind. And they were bad. They were doing like old, they were trying to do like, you know, old school, like uh, psych pop songs. And it, it seemed like almost the point where um, figure skaters used to have to do their required figures, you know, skate the, the, fig, the figure eights and stuff that they were required to do before they got to do the cool stuff. And, but they were one of my absolute favorite bands in the world. They became one of my absolute favorite bands again, and it became, and it was odd to just write about this one show as something that had to be taken in isolation. Whereas I think if you saw four or five shows for a band, you'd get maybe a greater understanding of what they did. I don't know. It 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 did it didn't seem that crucial at the time. Maybe it does now. Well, I mean, going into a fan, going in as a fan, or going in as, as as a supporter and being disappointed. I mean, I feel like that's actually like one of the best opportunities for criticism in a way because you know, it, it means so much more when you have an investment in it. 
Um, and to be able to see like, oh, the thing that I like is not flawless. Do you ever have an experience like that with food or? Oh, I have that with food so often. Yeah. Um, a lot of times there'll be a chef whose food I've liked at one restaurant or they go to the next restaurant. And a lot of the times it will sort of air towards the corporate side. What do you mean? Like just like the predictable kind of format or, or what? Yeah, I mean, it may even be a new format, but it's something that they're doing not because it's their great passion in the world, but because they think they can bring a lot of people in the restaurant. Ah, uh, yeah. It, it's it, One of the odd things about being a chef is that you're at your best when you have one restaurant and you have complete control over it and you know everything that's going out of your kitchen, you know everything that's going into your kitchen, it becomes almost an extension of you. But there's a limited amount of money you can make. There's a ceiling, right? You can't keep increasing prices because nobody wants to pay, you know, $900 for dinner. And you can't expand the footprint of the restaurant because there's only so far can go. So if, if you're a really accomplished chef, in order to make more money, you either have to A, do the TV thing, or B, or more likely and B, open a second restaurant or a third restaurant or a fourth restaurant. And maybe one will be the one that you absolutely love, and the rest of them will be ones that are pretty good restaurants that you're supervising. But the ones after the first one are never quite at the same level that your first one was. Do you have any... Uh... <laughs> You mentioned like being on TV and, you know, obviously like people get to know chefs now by their appearances on TV or like hosting a show or something. Do you have any of those shows that you you like or follow or get the Jay Gold stamp of approval? <laughs> I, I wish that I did. I probably watch <laughs> MasterChef more than I watch any of them because the, you know, Gordon Ramsay's sheer cruelty is <laughs> entertaining on some basic level. But a lot of them make me cringe. Like, I realize Top Chef is, like, the good one. Mm-hmm. But there's things when you have extremely talented, capable chefs who are usually the ones that get on that show, they're almost required to do this kind of cooking for show. They're swing, they're swinging for the fences. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, you know, odd combinations of on ingredients and odd techniques that they would probably never do in a restaurant but are almost required if they're going to be memorable to the people who are judging them. And I think that that's actually bleeding through into the nation's restaurant culture in a way that's not necessarily healthy. I mean, there are some chefs who are wonderful top chef contestants and who run perfectly awful restaurants. And, and there's also the contrary, right? I mean, there's, uh, like, Stephanie Izzard runs the Girl and the Goat in Chicago, which is a uh-huh. place that I would eat at four times a week if I could. And she was great on Top Chef. But it's, yeah. that's almost the exception. Well, I mean, you make such a good case in the film and, I mean, just in your body of work, too, for for people doing the things that are that have come down through traditions through years and years through their families and old recipes and stuff um and that seems like such a like yeah you're right that is like a different kind of food culture than i guess what you might call mainstream restaurant tourism um mm-hmm. but i feel like uh 
it, it, it does exist in a different way in Los Angeles. I mean, can you can you talk? I, I was trying to, to articulate this to somebody else after seeing the film. I was like, there's something so special to me about L.A. food because it feels accessible in a way. It feels intact as a tradition and also extremely accessible. Like, I live in New York now and I can't eat at most of the places I want to eat most of the time. But I could, when I lived in Koreatown, I could just go across the street to Galagetsa and get something for really cheap. Um, I don't know. Like, wh- wh- how do you think that L.A. differs in that way? Well, uh, I have a few theories, but one of them is that because of L.A.'s peculiar geography, uh I mean, New York, it has disparate neighborhoods and people of particular cultures tend to clump together. New York also has that, but since it's pushed in much more that if you're, say, if, you know, a Korean guy who has a restaurant on Northern Boulevard in Queens that never sees uh, American customers or very rarely does, you're still you're still on the bus with them and you're still taking the subway with them and you're still running into non-Koreans on the street all the time. And Mm -hmm. you start to have ideas about what they might like to eat and how they might like to have their food prepared. And maybe in anticipating that, the food becomes a certain way. Whereas in Los Angeles, the same person would never think of cooking for somebody that wasn't Korean, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, they, cause they're in their cars. There isn't the public transportation thing. There, there are Korean language schools or Korean language churches or Korean language travel agencies or Korean language butcher shops. I mean, you can conduct your entire life in Korean if mm-hmm. that's what you wanted to do. And so when he's serving that same bowl of goat stew, maybe... He's cooking it for other Koreans, and if you want to come and you want to eat it, that's fine. But in a way, they don't care about you as much. Right, yeah. I mean, there's you know food writer in L.A. who's Taiwanese and goes to the San Gabriel Valley and talks to restaurateurs that have been on my recommended list for years and assumes that I have like a big impact on what their day-to-day business is. Mm-hmm. And I don't really. I mean, they're almost... <laughs> unaware of it now now i'm translated a lot more into like chinese language things but oh, wow. that, that's, okay. that's 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 fairly new right and and the one thing about being at the la times as opposed to being at you know the la weekly or gourmet where i used to be was is that if i'm writing about you know a cambodian place in north long beach there are cambodians in north long beach that subscribe to the los angeles times it's as much their newspaper as it is anybody else. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's neighborhood news and it's not some, somebody from a distance saying that it's exotic. Yeah. Because the, the idea of the exotic, the idea of the ethnic, the idea of thinking of that food as somehow the other is something that I abhor and I hope I never do that. Yeah, and it's very much, and that's like a projected feeling from being an outsider in it as opposed to coming in and, and being a guest and submitting yourself to it, uh, which is, I think, what what a, a typical LA, like a, a deeply ethnic LA restaurant, demands of you, which is sort of nice. I mean, I I, I like that a lot. <laughs> That's what I miss a lot there. Yeah, we were talking a little bit earlier about that. Sometimes you feel the restaurants in New York aren't fired that they're too expensive, and here 
not in not universally, but there's almost the sense that the more you pay for food past a certain level, the more sort of deracinated it's going to be. Yeah, because definitely. The pe- because the people who really know what the texture of a pupusa is supposed to be, um, the customers who keep you honest are the people who are the most recently here from El Salvador. And the people who are most recently here from El Salvador are probably not extremely wealthy. And it has to be at a level that they're going to be able to afford it and fit it into their weekly schedule. Yeah. And then that becomes like the most authentic experience for that. Um, the end of the film is extremely touching and is a, a, you reading a piece that you wrote shortly after the L.A. riots. Um, and you were already a food writer at that time. I mean, can you kind of tell me a little bit about, I guess, how how that that experience kind of shaped, if, if it shook or, or shifted or, or ch- changed the way that you saw people approaching food or just, you know, day-to-day, like daily mundane activities like we're talking about, and if that's affected, like, your writing going forward or how you view Los Angeles going forward? I, I'm not sure it's affected it a lot, but there's that feeling of maybe being part of something that was a bigger part of that than I'd ever thought it might be, right? It's like mm-hmm. when when the fabric of the city breaks and you see on the lines that it breaks. And a lot of it is about neighborhood and realizing that the guys on my block standing on the roofs with guns protecting the neighborhood. I was part of that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And these were people that I probably never talked to. I mean, maybe waved to on the street, and the situation was abhorrent, and the idea of people standing sentry with guns is hideous, but it's the idea that the neighborhood is looking out for the people in the neighborhood was sort of beautiful in a way. And it's something, that's an experience you don't you know, necessarily get in other neighborhoods in Los Angeles. I think that's the experience of L.A. that I think a lot of people don't know about um, is being, you know, that ingrained into a neighborhood that's not Beverly Hills or on the west side of L.A. or something like that um, and feeling connected to it. Yeah, there's the idea of a lot of neighborhoods in L.A. of keeping people out. Yeah. But so much of Los Angeles isn't about that. It's about welcoming otherness and welcoming the people that are around you and the sort of beautiful things that happen at the intersections when different cultures collide. I mean, culinary, that could be like the you know, a Thai restaurant that I, that I like that's mostly, um, most of the customers are Central American because they like mm-hmm. a particular seafood soup that they do. Yeah. Because it's, it's really spicy and the seafood is fresh and it makes them happy. And it's not really Thai Salvadoran food, but it's Thai food that Salvadorans really like. And it's different from the Thai food that Chinese people really like, which tends to be a little blander. And it's different from the Thai food that Thai people like, which is like incredibly fishy and incredibly spicy and incredibly herbal. And they're all good. They're all different. They all serve different purposes, but they're all great it's like and there are so few environments where like 
all those those people are together close enough that they can encounter that exchange with each other in that particular setting. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I, I really appreciate it. I, I, I love the film. The film's called City of Gold, um, and it's available this Friday. If it's in your city, check it out um, and definitely read uh, Jonathan's writing on the LA Times um, and go back in the art archives, do some digging because uh, it's really, really worth your time. Um, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks, Emily. It's been super fun. So that was my interview with Jonathan Gold um, and City of Gold hits limited theaters today if you're listening to us on Friday and uh, eventually we'll be able to uh, you'll be able to watch it on some other some other places as well. Um, but that's our podcast. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Don't don't forget to try to go to bed early this weekend so that your sleep deprivation won't be so bad on Monday. Remember to time out your your sleep cycle 15 minutes at a time. <laughs> Pro tip. Pro tip from Liz Lapata. Pro tip. Um, uh, we will be back next week. Uh, I will probably have just uh, so many interesting stories about the most interesting cultural place in the world, South by Southwest, where it's just all the culture happens. Well, my brand uh, is already activated just hearing about it. No, my brand is my brand is fully activated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget oh, to subscribe. Be sure to, be sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Emily Yoshida and Liz is Miss Lapato and Miss Lapato. We'll see you next week. Bye.